Hey everyone, welcome to season three, episode six of the Right Words podcast. I am Hayley Walsh, your host, author of Lighthearted Fiction, and as always, I'm coming to you from Darug Country in far western Sydney at the base of the beautiful Blue Mountains. Now in this episode, I bring you a fantastic interview with American author Julia Daly. We had a wonderful chat about her debut novel titled No Names To Be Given, which was inspired by her own experience of being adopted as a child. So I won't go, I won't give too much away. We had a wonderful, wonderful chat about that book and so much more. We have an awesome author spotlight by Mo Phillips, who is a poet and creator of the website called The Feisty Beast. Her reading is absolutely amazing. And I swear to God, if I was looking for an American to narrate one of my books, I would ask Mo. What a wonderful narration of this poem. You're going to really enjoy it. Now, I give you some advice on dealing with negative book reviews, and we jet off to the wonderful country of New Zealand for our Writing Around the World news segment. So without further ado, let's jump straight into the episode. Okay, guys, let's have a chat about something that affects all of us from time to time, dealing with negative book reviews. So you've just received your first one or two star review. Your eyes scan over the harsh criticism of your book baby and your fragile heart shatters into a thousand tiny pieces. Most writers have been there and believe me, you are not alone. Reading your first harsh review is tough, but let's look at how to deal with it. Are there any positives you can take away from it? Is there anything you can learn from it? Is it just plain rude or nasty? And how do you deal with those negative emotions and soldier on? So first of all, it's important to understand it is part of the process. If you put your work out there, you are going to get feedback and getting some critical reviews is inevitable. Writing is art, hey? And art is subjective after all. So not everyone is going to like your book and that's okay. So try not to dwell on the negative. We may have lots of great reviews, but what do we all do? It's human nature. We tend to dwell on the negative one that just came through. So let's put it into perspective. Ignore that review and try to focus on the positive. Now, don't respond to the reviewer. Whatever you do, always refrain from responding or sending a message to the person who left the review. In my opinion, this is author suicide. It is not a good look. And once you have left that comment, your response is out there for all to see. You will be viewed in a negative light and probably more so than the reviewer. So try to keep your anger and frustration to yourself. Now, this is probably the most important piece of advice coming from me. Everyone knows I've got a great sense of humor. So try to see the funny side of it. You know the old saying, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. And I'll give you an example. My book titled Making March contains the diary entries of a negative, glass half empty and sarcastic 40 something year old who loves to rant and ramble about her everyday life. Below is the very first one-star review I got for this book, and it reads, The book just rambles its way along. I kept reading, hoping it would get better. But if this person's, sorry, if this is a person's diary, the person really needs to get a life. Too much rambling, not enough content to keep me entertained. And as a friend of mine said, it's utter drivel. When I first saw this review, I was gutted. And if I recall correctly, I drank two glasses of wine and almost finished a one litre tub of ice cream. Now, there may have been a few tears, but I can't remember. Actually, there probably was. (laughs) After I calmed down and reflected a little, I realised the reader completely missed the humour in the book. The protagonist is supposed to be negative and a bit of a drama queen. So like I said before, your book won't be every reader's cup of tea. 
So try to look for constructive criticism if you can, because some readers leave constructive feedback. So pay attention. Is there anything you can improve upon and learn from your feedback and write a better book next time? Make sure there is a next time. This is big. Don't let negative reviews stop you. Keep writing. Remember, it's only one person's opinion. Their opinion doesn't define you or your work. Now, bad reviews provide a balance to your good reviews. Have a look at the reviews for some of your favorite authors. Are they all glowing five-star reviews? No, they're probably not. And if they were, you might question if it's possible that every single reader loved it. It's quite unrealistic, isn't it? So there you have it. We all get bad reviews from time to time. And when you do, you know you've made it as a writer. And if all else fails, pop open the bubbly and celebrate being a member of the club. Welcome to our Writing Around the World news segment, where this episode we are jetting off to the land of the long white cloud, the beautiful country of New Zealand. I love New Zealand and will be cruising around the country with my partner in February next year, and I cannot wait. So let's find out what writerly events are happening in the coming months. This year's Marlborough Book Festival features 23 sessions with 16 wonderful authors. It's going to be a fabulous weekend of inspiring, informative and entertaining conversations. The festival will run from the 20th to the 23rd of July. Listen to writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. There will be books for sale for signing by authors, refreshments on offer and a whole bunch of book lovers to befriend. Why not make a weekend of it? A book festival in the heart of wine country sounds good to me. So to find out more, go to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. Now, secondly, the New Zealand Young Writers Festival is made up of four jam-packed days of free, fun, literary-focused events held annually in the heart of, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Otapoti in the beautiful city of Dunedin. The festival welcomes young writers aged 15 to 35 of all stripes to celebrate a diverse range of wordsmithing, including slam poetry, playwriting, songwriting, short fiction, novels, screenwriting, poetry, journalism, blogging, critical content creation, podcasts, review writing, and so much more. My God, that was a mouthful. <laughs> the festival is by young writers for young writers, but audiences of all ages are welcome to come along. The festival is being held from the 21st to the 24th of September. And for more information, simply go to youngwritersfest.nz. And lastly, the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival is being held from the 13th to the 15th of October. The festival is a celebration of writers, readers, ideas and all things literature. You'll love this festival if you enjoy library shelves stacked with treasure, discussing books with avid readers or being part of a big conversation and expanding your horizons. For more information, go to dunedinwritersfestival.co.nz. So it seems Dunedin is the place to be for writers. And if you're in New Zealand, be sure to check out these wonderful events. Hello, everyone. I'm Mo Phillips, poet, writer, and film producer. I'm here today to tell you about a poetry website I've created with my sound designer husband, Ian, and performer Namakula Naseje Musok, who not only produces with me, but is also the most featured narrator of the poems. We are based out of New York City. The name of the website where the poetry lives and breathes is called The Feisty Beast. 
I've always been enamored of mythical creatures. Fairies, ghosts, pukas, goblins. Usually humor comes into play when I write about them. I've been writing and publishing in anthologies and magazines for about eight years now. My work has been featured in the U.S., Australia, England, Ireland, Canada, and India. I love telling stories, and I think that comes from my Irish ancestry. I like to say the elements and elementals are a great source of inspiration for me. I love a traditional sit-down with a good book, but my background as a content producer for advertising and films made me realize I could bring these two art forms together, and the feisty beast was born. And by the way, the feisty beast is what I call my muse. Sometimes it appears with a frothy cappuccino for me. Other times it spills ice water down my back. It's an elusive beast, but one I truly appreciate, despite it being fickle at times. The poetry work I put on the website is geared for kids and adults. We always say 8 to 80 is our audience sweet spot. If you like the idea of a dragon having an aerial battle with a sword-wielding fairy, I think you'd enjoy the sight. Leaning hard into imagery is especially key when I'm writing for audio narration. We want the listener to run their version of the movie in their own head. I never know where an inspiration will come from. The Wizard's Whistle poem is based on an M.R. James short story, Whistle and I'll Come to Ye, My Lad. We have a Medusa whose idea of a chatty dinner party ensures her guests won't say a word. Halloween brought about the ghoul. Don't go knocking on gravestones at midnight is a lesson learned from this story. And that's what these are, stories. A feral girl who finds her wolf family and thrives. A deep sea dive to the octopus tango ball, where cephalopods get their groove on. These are the places we go. Bear Bunny Love is a personal favorite of mine. That started with the line, isn't it funny how a bear and a bunny? It was stuck in my head. That would be from the feisty muse I was telling you about who comes to visit. Music and sound effects are critical as well as the performance. And speaking of the performance, Namakula is a gifted storyteller who happens to also be a trained actress. Her voice quality and the way she gets into character is always a treat when we hear her ourselves. She puts the final dabs of paint on the picture we are creating. We especially loved her rendition of The Lady in the Hat. Here, she steps up to the mic at a jazz club to deliver the story of a fashionista against the wind. We always want to make sure the words are telling the story, that we support the experience of the listener with a setting, a scenario. I was very much inspired by my work with Disney when it came to sound design and how important that is. We've just started opening up to featuring other poets on our site, something we are very excited about. So thank you so much for listening, and I do hope you tune in for some poetry at thefeistybeast.com. And for your listening pleasure, here is Mortimer the Dragon. Stay feisty, as we like to say. Champion of a thousand fights, gobbler of a thousand nights. One day a dragon met his match when it was a fairy he tried to catch. He spied her from his perch on high, decided he would make her fry. Mortimer snorted smoke with glee. He'd dunk this wench in his tea. An afternoon's toothsome bite would quell his dragon's appetite. Crush her bones in iron claws, munch her in his smoking jaws. Mortimer prepared his strike, his tail unfurled, a pointed pike, poised to plunge his deadly dart into the fairy's beating heart. What this dragon didn't know about his fair prey down below? This fairy was a warrior elf who knew the art of war herself. 
Down he dove at this small sparrow. Wings clove the sky like an arrow. Mortimer spewed a cloud of ash. Blind the imp, make her crash. The fairy zigzagged just in time. Heavenward she began to climb. Mortimer roared, picked up speed, vowed to make this maiden bleed. The fairy spun in mid-flight, inches from that blazing bite. Pulled a sword from her side. Come now, dragon, take a ride. Mortimer felt a pang of fright. He wanted a snack, not a fight. The sky answered the fairy's call. Sweet blue turned to inky squall. Roaring thunder clapped and clashed. Sizzling bolts of lightning flashed. Cruel Mortimer drew in his breath. His next exhale, scorching death. Mortimer prepared to do his worst. She cried, a drink for that thirst. Swung her steel with all her might, sword crackling with silver light. Bleed slashed the seething clouds, shredding their gray, woolly shrouds. Mortimer realized far too late, this battle would now seal his fate. Before the worm could spread his ire, the deluge quenched his dragon fire. He'd been beaten in this joust, dragon flame forever doused. Off he raced to meet his doom, his mountain home, now a tomb. Sealed in his cave, there he lies. Escape, <laughs> he never even tries. Hello everyone, I'm here with author Julia Daly to chat about her books titled No Names to Be Given and The Fifth Daughter of Thorn Ranch. Julia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, I'm very excited to be here. Yes, it's been a long time coming, hasn't it? It has. <laughs> so for our listeners, both Julia and I on a couple of occasions have got a bit confused about the time difference between the US and Sydney, but we finally got there. Yes, I, I'm very challenged when it comes to all these time zones. <laughs> okay, so Julia, let's start with you telling the listeners a little bit about yourself. I say I'm a Texan with a Southern accent because I spent most of my life in Mississippi in the U.S. to be buried in Texas. When we retired um, from Mississippi, I thought we were looking for cooler summers and we were looking in the mountains of North Carolina. And my husband had a lot of board meetings out in San Antonio, Texas. And he would say, every time I land in Texas, it just feels right. And I said, well, those aren't cooler summers. So we came out here and we looked all around the hill country, which is a beautiful area in, in Texas. And we decided to make this our permanent residence. So we, we moved to Texas. But before that, I had a lot of different careers. I have taught everything from kindergarten to the university level. I was an executive director of a, a nonprofit, the Craftsman's Guild of Mississippi. We had 300 artisans from 19 states and we operated the Mississippi Craft Center. And so I wrote all of their stories to introduce them to the public. And 
I've, I've really done just about everything you can think of. I've owned restaurants. I've had catering businesses. Wow. I even shadowed Martha Stewart. So I, I've done a lot in my life and I still <laughs> feel like I have a lot to do. Now, look, I did have that jotted down. I want to know what happened there. What do you mean by shadow Martha Stewart? That's pretty cool. Tell us all about that. Back in... I think it was 1985, a long time ago, Martha Stewart had written her first cooking book called Entertaining, a beautiful, um, all different colors, you know, used on the photos inside with those luscious foods that she was so famous for. She was catering in New York and all over Connecticut where she lived. And she came to do a cooking school in Mississippi and I decided to take it because I was catering um, myself and and operating a restaurant and I thought I'll just go and and pick up a few tips from Martha Stewart and when I got there I just had this great idea that I would ask her if I could come and and shadow her and she looked at me like I was crazy she said I've never done anything like that before and I said well uh, it's for free. I'm coming for free. You don't have to pay me anything. I'll just be another pair of hands in your kitchen. So oh my God, that's awesome. Said, she finally said yes. And I went to Connecticut. I got to meet all of her chefs, all of her staff members, you know, see her home. And, and I shadowed her for several weeks and just got to see the most beautiful events. And it, it really was a, a wonderful experience. Wow. So look, being a writer, I have to ask you, do you have a, have you ever written a cookbook or would you like to write a cookbook? I always thought that I would. I always thought that all the Southern recipes that I had from my mother and grandmother and great grandmother, you know, that I would put them into a book one day, but you know, now everything's online. So I don't know how many cookbooks are still selling because everybody can look up all their recipes online. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, never thought about that. Yeah, good point. But what an what an amazing experience getting to meet Martha Stewart. That would have been amazing. It was, and the staff she had, the young chefs were just amazing. They could bake or cook anything. And after work, they would say, we're going by the farmer's market and pick up some fruit and make some pies and homemade ice cream. Do you want to come along? And I was, yes, I do. I'll be there. <laughs> of course, the answer would be yes. Absolutely. Yes. I'm there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, Julia, you have a bachelor's degree in English. So have you always been a lover of words from a very think- young age? I think so. My mother was an English major and she made sure that, you know, we spoke the King's English as she would say, but um, I think I've always loved stories in the South, especially, you know, stories are, are so important and oral histories and all the history that's gone on there in the South. I I think I've always been in love with stories. Another side of me would say I was avoiding anything that had to do with math. So I went into <laughs> I the, can relate. I can relate. I went into the English uh, department there. But um, yes, I've always loved stories and I've always uh, loved to write. And when I was a child, you know, I, I kept little journals and, and wrote little imaginary stories. I always had quite an imagination. Yeah. Yeah, me too. But look, if you ask me what two plus two is on a bad day, the answer might be five. I'm You're no good exactly with right. I'm not good with numbers. <laughs> so, you're, like, you were involved in a lot of things. So, 
I'll try and spit this out because it's a mouthful. So you're a member of the Writers League of Texas, the Women Fiction Writers Association, the official Pulpwood Queen's Book Club, Women Writing the West and the Women's National Book Association. So that's an awful lot. So can you tell me about these groups that you're involved in? Sounds amazing. I always like to join my professional associations, no matter what career I've had. Mm -hmm. You know, if I was in uh, the restaurant business, I joined all the food service organizations. If I was in a nonprofit organization, I made sure that I was in all of their professional organizations. And so when I came to Texas and began to put these stories down on paper, I found out that Texas has a wonderful Writers League, and they offer so many classes, so many writing retreats, so many conferences, and so I quickly became a member of the Writers League of Texas, mm -hmm. and then the Women Fiction Writers Association, which celebrates its 10th year this year with a big conference in Chicago. Oh, fantastic. Be part of them and I we just celebrated a couple of days ago women's fiction day so I was part of that women's fiction day committee and we had a lot of events going on and and it's just so great to be a part of you know any organization that is going to teach you and be able to help you hone your craft yeah networking is so important isn't it it really is. And, and, you know, for the last few years, when we had to stop going to a lot of conferences in person, I discovered Zoom. I, I never had heard of Zoom until the <laughs> pandemic. And now we can Zoom into people's living rooms all around the country, you know, and, and conduct book club meetings and, and we can have online conferences. It's really been great. Yeah. And you and I are talking over Zoom today. So there you go. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it makes the world a very small place, doesn't it? It's lovely. It, it does. But it's so great to get back to those conferences after you've gotten to know somebody online and get to meet them in person. That's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I try to run a, um, a Sydney writers group, you know, with fellow writers over Twitter, and we try to do it at least four times a year. And it's just lovely to, you know, get together somewhere by the water on a beautiful day, you know, over a cup of coffee or lunch and just and just chat about about writing and get, getting yes. to know people face to face. It's so special, isn't it? I would love to come and come to Australia and sit in on your coffee chats. Yeah, wouldn't it be nice? We could sit at Circular Quay by the harbour, by yes. Sydney Harbour, just one of the most beautiful spots in the world, in my opinion. I bet. We're very lucky. Yeah, it'd be lovely. Now, Julia, I have to ask everyone this question. Being a writer, I'm sure you love books and you like to read. So what do you like to read? What inspires you? You know, I have become so uh, drawn to psychological thrillers these days, and I don't know what that says about me in my old age, but mm, I'm um, <laughs> really loving the psychological thrillers. I, of course, I love women's fiction, what they're calling women's fiction these days. I think that that term is on its way to, to be changed, but women's fiction, historical fiction are my favorites, but those psychological thrillers, I can uh, listen to on by audio as I'm riding my bike and I can gasp, you know, and yep. um, nobody can see me when I'm out on the road. <laughs> <laughs> nobody can see your reaction. Oh my God. No, I know. <laughs> Do you have any authors, particular authors that you enjoy? Well, Julie Clark is one I really enjoy. I don't know if you've read Last Flight, 
but, um, but it is, it, I was so envious when she came up with that premise and I, it didn't occur to me first, but it's about two women who meet in an airport and they both want to disappear. So they exchange tickets. Now, oh, isn't that a great premise? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. I know. I wish I'd thought of it. Yeah. So, yeah, interesting. Sometimes I think we all want to escape our life from time to time, don't we? So <laughs> I think we can all relate to that in a small way, which makes it even more interesting. Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. Now, you're retired, so I'm very jealous. <laughs> so apart from your writing, what keeps you the busiest now you're retired? Uh thought that I was going to pay it forward to my writing community and start a podcast. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll do about, you know, 12 episodes and have the old podcast fade. And, and, uh, and then I will have done my due for the writing community. Mm -hmm. Well, I just uh, started this podcast called authors over 50. Mm -hmm. And it's about those of us who have written our first book after the age of 50. And I have been overwhelmed by the number of writers who've reached out to tell me their stories and their writing in what I call life's sweetest third. And I just recorded my 164th episode in just little more than a year. Oh, that's amazing. Congratulations. Well, thank you. It's, it's been very exciting, but it's kept me from writing because I've been so immersed in podcasting. Yeah. And, and do you get a mixture of both male and female authors or is it female authors on the podcast? It's a, it's a really good mixture and people from all over the world. And it's so interesting to see those of us who are in our retirement, who have been doctors or, or lawyers or have MBAs or mm -hmm. who are living in army trucks on their way to Mongolia. I mean, it's just amazing the, the people, um, what they're doing now in their retirement years and that they wanted to write a book. Yeah. And such, such diversity between everyone, everyone's doing something different. Fascinating. Yeah, they really are. And I like how you refer to what I think you call it the sweetest third. Is yes, that meaning like the sweetest third? third? Yeah. So tell us about that. I think that was really sweet. Well, you could divide it up any way you'd like. I, I say from one to 30 is your mm -hmm. first third of life. And from 30 to 60 is probably your second third. And then 60 to 90, you know, something like that. Or you could divide it however you'd like, but it's, it's our last third. Yeah. And I think in some ways it's the best third. I mean, I'm only three years away from 50 myself, you know, so I think, you know, with that age comes so much wisdom. Uh, you know, we've been through so much. We've been through loss. We've been through heartache. We've been through joy. And I just think it makes us, you know, yeah, just a, just a, a better understanding of the universe at that age. I think it's a great age. I agree. And my first question on authors over 50 is always, what took you so long to write your first book? And those answers are pretty much, you know, we had these wonderful careers and we, we reared our children and, you know, we did everything that we wanted to do. And now this third is, is for us. And we've always wanted to write or we've, or we never thought we wanted to write. And now I'm an author, you know, so I, I think people do have the wisdom and hindsight of, I, I think these books would have been entirely different if we had written them at age 30. Yeah. Look, I only published my first book at 44. So I wasn't very, you know, I wasn't really young either. So 
and I've always wanted to write a book and it took me pretty much um, until I lost my father quite suddenly mm. and then I reevaluated my whole life and thought life's too short I need to get this book written and um yeah 44 I was when I published my first book well you almost made it to to 50 almost almost <laughs> and there's another great podcast you might like this one Julia there's uh, two Australian girls who have a podcast called don't give a 50 which is oh. fantastic. And they interview women um, from 50, you know, from 50 and over 50 who just are doing amazing things with their life, you know. So they talk to journalists, they talk to authors, they talk to doctors, lawyers, teachers, um, just about their life and what they've achieved over the age of 50. So that's a great one as well. It's called Don't Give a 50. Oh, I love that. I'll have to check them out. Yeah. And I think especially as women too, you know, they say we're invisible over 50, life, you know, life is over once you turn 50. And that's not the case at all, is it? No, not at all. Uh, I've told people as I've interviewed them in their 70s, 80s, even 90s, that I think writing is something we can do the rest of our lives. It's kind of like swimming. It keeps us sharp. It keeps our minds uh, occupied and I think it's very important for us to do that and to feel we're being productive. Yeah, absolutely. Now let's jump into your book. So your first book that you um, published is called No Names to Be Given. So tell us a little bit about the book. Well, No Names came about because um, I'm an adopted child from a maternity home in New Orleans mm -hmm. and I was adopted at two months of age and I searched and found my birth mother and then through DNA results, my birth father's side of the family. And so these stories have always been in my, my mind. And actually I took a couple of courses when I was working for a university, they allowed us to take some writing courses as part of our compensation. And I wrote a few chapters uh, for that class. And when we moved to Texas, I found those chapters in a manila folder as I was cleaning out and unpacking. And I said to myself, you know, if, I, if I'm going to ever write this book, it needs to be now. And that's when I began to, to think about the young women back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, mm -hmm. uh, especially who, um, if you became pregnant and you were unwed, you were forced to go away somewhere and give up that baby for adoption and the and then come back home as if nothing transpired. So as I was thinking about the plot for this book, I didn't want to make it strictly memoir because um, my birth mother was still alive. She had not told everybody in, in her family that she had ever given up a baby for adoption. Right. And so I, I wanted to turn it into fiction, but a lot of the chapters are pretty much verbatim my life as an adopted child. So one of the characters is based pretty closely on my my life as an adoptee but it's about three young women in 1966 who meet at a maternity home in new orleans to relinquish their babies and to return home uh, and pretend nothing happened until they're brought back together 25 years later by a blackmailer who threatens to expose their secrets all the way to the white house wow okay Wow, sounds fascinating. But like, how did you approach writing a story that was, you know, so close to your heart and so personal for you? How did you approach that that process? I'm, I imagine that would be quite difficult at times. 
Well, you know, they say sometimes we write as a form of our own therapy. And I, yeah. I think probably I was getting some of those emotional emotions on paper that maybe I have never dealt with. You know, we squash down a lot of feelings and we don't know um, what trauma is inside of us. And so maybe I was trying to understand the pattern you know, and, and adoption and how that affected me or, or that I didn't know how it affected me, but, um, that, that's, that's what kicked off the idea for me. And, and doing my research, I found that a hundred million Americans have adoption in their immediate families. And that's a lot of us, you know, that's and huge, yeah, huge. And there's so many women's issues surrounding this, you know, that are pertinent in today's society because we we have lots of conversations about same-sex adoptive parents, open or closed record states, you know, adopting out of the culture. And then of course the flip of the coin, abortion and all the lawsuits that surround Roe versus Wade. And yeah. of course there there is many opinions on each of these subjects as there are adopted children. So I, I really just wanted to make it an interesting story. And I tried to get into the minds of those women who would have to relinquish their firstborn to strangers. Yeah. And Julia, I wonder if there's any women out there who have picked up your book and read the story and have kept that secret to themselves their whole life. And it's like you're telling their story for them that they've never had a chance to tell. They may have kept it to themselves and nobody knows and the trauma no, that they've that been through. That has been my favorite part of writing this book are all the people who have reached out to me to tell me that exact same thing. Yeah. Um, I've, I've heard from other adoptees. I've heard from um, birth parents. I've heard from adoptive um, parents. I've, I've just heard from so many people who've shared their stories with me. And one was so interesting. A woman in California, uh, a birth mother wrote to me and told me that she had relinquished her son for adoption in the same maternity home where I was relinquished for adoption in wow. New Orleans. And I asked her when she read my book, did I get it right about, you know, your stay in the maternity home? And she said, pretty close. She said, you were a little kinder um, in your um, reflections on the home than we actually experienced. But she said it was pretty close. Yeah, because it's interesting because, like, although you sort of lived, you know, in, in the era depicted in the book, there was obviously a bit of a research that was required for historical accuracy because you would have been so young at the time. So how did you approach that, the historical accuracy, um, accuracy in the book? I did think that I remembered a lot, but I, okay. I, had, to, I had to go back and, and to really uh, find out when certain events happened. You know, we... we think, oh, that was in 72, and no, it was 76, you know, so you had to kind of pinpoint um, different things, and um, so I did do a lot of research about when certain music, certain foods would, would have been more popular, what New Orleans would have been like um, during that time, because, of course, I was being born at that time, not living at that time. Mm. And I did, I did talk to her a lot about her experience there. So I did think that I understood the maternity home aspect. Um, my adoptive parents would take me every summer to visit that maternity home to see where they actually um, adopted me. And so I remember what the building looked like and smelled like, you know, and 
And so I put some of that into the book. Yeah. Wow. So what about your journey to public uh, publication with the first book? So how did, how did you get this book published? Was it traditionally published, self-published? I went to a writing conference and I was talking about my ideas for this book. And I met um, a lovely young woman who is also an author, but she had started a small imprint, um, a small indie press. And she said, you know, I'd like to publish your book. And I said, well, it's available. So <laughs> we, we, we've had a great relationship. She's um, published both of my books. Oh, beautiful. And I, I understand that No Names to Be Given has actually won quite a few awards. Is that correct? It has. I think yeah, it's up so tell to me about, about those. 15, 15 awards now. Wow. Um, but yes, it's, it's, it's won um, some international impact book awards. It, it won the New York City Big Book Award, a historical fiction award, which, you know, kind of always throws me because I think, were the 60s historical? <laughs> I, I, lived, I lived in that time, but now <laughs> anything 50 years or older, you know, is considered history. So it's a bit scary, uh, isn't it really? It's very scary when you've lived in more than, than one century. It really gets your attention. Absolutely. But, but yes, it's, it's been very fortunate to, um, to be chosen in a lot of categories and uh, number one in several sales categories on Amazon. And one thing that I'm really excited about, I'm waiting to hear from several studios in Los Angeles. They're considering both my books for streaming. So that's exciting to think about. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. So your second book, is called The Fifth Daughter of Thorn Ranch. So this sounds very different. So tell me about this one. Sounds completely different to your first book. It really is. And a lot of people wanted me to uh, continue with the young women in the first book and, and to start mm -hmm. a series. But when we moved to Texas, I became so enamored with these large, massive ranches here in Texas that are generational ranches that have been in the same family for many generations. And a lot of them are being, are being chopped up into subdivisions, you know, houses are being built on them and, and the beautiful landscape is being torn away, stripped away. And so I, I've talked to a lot of people whose families have owned these ranches, you know, for hundreds of years. And then my husband and I travel to Colorado and there's a national park there called Mesa Verde National Park. And it looks like condos built into the side of a mountain. It is the most beautiful, there are beautiful ruins of an ancient people who live there. Wow. And when I, when I asked the guide, what happened to these people? Why did they leave? He said, we don't know. We don't know if it was warfare, if it was drought, if it was disease, but they left. And so in my little imagination, I thought, well, if they left Colorado, they could have come to Texas. And so I started thinking about South Texas on the border of Mexico. There's a Latina heiress to the largest ranch in Texas who stumbles upon an ancient people living on her property. And so that was my idea for that book. Okay. Okay. So 
I always like to ask people this question. So when you write a book, Julia, does the plot or the characters come first for you, do you think? So when you're thinking about your book, what comes first? I think what comes first for me is that first page, that that inciting incident, you know, that that kickoff comes first for me. I usually know the beginning and the end. And it's that mushy middle I have to figure out, you know, in between. But yeah, but I, and it sort of I, changes as you go along. You sound very similar it, to me. Yeah, it really does. And I can see when I'm writing, I can see it like it's on the big screen. I can see it being acted out. When I was writing No Names, I could see those three pregnant young women walking down the streets in New Orleans. I knew what they would eat, what they would wear you know, the sights and the smells that were around them. I could see all of that in my mind. So I think I see what's going to happen in the beginning and the end. And then I start developing those characters and that middle in between. Yeah. Talking about characters in, in your second book, do you have, do you think there's a character in that book that you would get along well with the most and why you might get along with that character? I'd like to find out about the characters in people's books. Yes, I mean, I was in love with the heiress in my book. Um, I just thought that she was a very remarkable young woman. She had gone to veterinarian school in Texas at Texas A&M, and she was going to be placed in a very precarious situation she didn't know if she wanted to inherit this huge property and when I'm talking large ranches here in Texas um, the one that I'm describing which would have been King Ranch in South Texas many years ago it had a million acres well not many people can I can't get my head around that that's no people can't imagine what a million acres is but it's larger than New York and LA combined that's a million acres and so someone who doesn't know what a vast space looks like would read the book and they would say well I think somebody would know if somebody was living on their property. And I said, a million acres. My ranch is very much smaller than that. And we haven't been to all corners of it. So I'm telling you, if you had a million acres and you lived on the border of the United States and Mexico, and you had all of these mountainous ranges and caves, and you would not know who was living on your property. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah, I just can't get my head around that. That's Massive. I mean, and, and I live in, you know, obviously a huge continent, like, you know, Australia's and, and the US are pretty much the same size. Yes. But yeah, I, even living in Australia, you know, like just to drive to the tip of Queensland from Sydney is, you know, like a six day road trip. And I, I still can't get my head around a hundred acres, that, uh, sorry, a million acres. That's just mammoth, no. huge. It, it covers counties and counties and, you know, miles and miles. I mean, it's just an unbelievable amount of property. Yeah, now I think that book was only um, published, wasn't it, November last year? Yes. Yeah. So what's some of the feedback um, that you've got from some of the reviews? What are the readers thinking about your book? You're getting some great reviews coming in. Yes, and, and yeah, several I've had a look awards. at some of the reviews. Yeah, several of the awards um, have been on that book as well. And like I said, um, the studios first I thought they would pick up no names to be given with all the women's issues going on Mm. in the country and the world and and that that would be the first one that they would be attracted to but you know 
contemporary Westerns right now are really hot. Um, Yellowstone, for instance, mm. is yeah, that's is been very successful, hasn't it? Very successful programs on television. So they they thought that my flipping the cowboy stereotype on its head and making all women on this ranch that that would uh, really be interesting. So I think it may be picked up first. How exciting! How exciting! So you you, you can't say much about that at the moment, or. The media agents are, are working now. They, they have what they call pitch decks, and uh-huh. it's, it's kind of like a, a PowerPoint that they take to studios and they show them photos and, you know, actors that they would put in there and, um, you know, ideas for the, the producers, and that's where they are right now. So nothing yet. My husband says, you're not depending on that, are you? And I'll say, no. <laughs> of course not I'm not depending on it but it would be so fun to think about that would be just amazing wouldn't it you know to see your you know your story um you know made into a tv series or a film I think that's a dream of a lot of writers out there I think that's just so exciting it is Haley. but you know um the notes that I receive from the script writer, this is the reason that I started taking a script writing course myself, because, mm-hmm. you know, once they take the rights to your book, mm-hmm. they don't have to follow the book at all. They can take an idea from the book and yeah. they can turn it into anything they want. So it may not look like your book. And I think that's why a lot of us say the book was better because a lot of times the movies don't follow the books. Yeah, and I wonder how, yeah, I guess, you know, if it, if, if it is picked up for production, I guess that's a bit of a, a weird experience, isn't it, for the author to see their story change? It really is. The first notes I received from the script writer, I read it and I put it down and I thought, I think she sent me the wrong script. This has nothing to do with my book. <laughs> this is not my book. <laughs> exactly. I didn't recognize it. <laughs> oh, my God. Now, this is an exciting question. What are you working on at the moment? Are you working on a new book? Are you working on anything new? Well, in between trying to do all these podcasts, I have started writing a a third book. Mm -hmm. And um, when people ask me about it, I'll say, well, I think the idea came from wanting to kill off an ex-husband. So you can go with that. (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, it, it may be one of those psychological thrillers. Okay, okay. So you're just in the, in the planning of this book or have you actually started or how far are you into the process? I've got a couple of chapters written. You know, like I said, I always know the, the beginning. I can see it on the big screen, the beginning and the end. And, and I, so I've got a couple of the first chapters written. Okay. So I think you've already answered one of the questions I was going to ask you, you know, being a plotter or a pantser, you're obviously a bit of a pantser or you're a bit of both. Do you think is half and half? I think I'm pretty hybrid. I I think I was a pantser to begin with. And then I started having to start some type of outlines, you know, keep some journals because, you know, it's so difficult by the time you've written 80,000 words, you look back and think, oh, I, I had given her blonde hair and now she's got red hair at the, at the end. And, you know, her, her eyes were blue. Now they're green. And yep. <laughs> you have to, you have to keep some uh, key elements written down. So I think I, I plan more now than I ever did. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you a funny story. One of my books I was writing, it was the third um, round of, of beta reads and someone picked up that Mark had changed to Michael halfway through the book. So I changed a, ca- a main character's name and hadn't even noticed. <laughs> so. Yes, we do because we we are so with it for so long. And, and then, you know, you put that part aside and you think, I don't know who they are anymore. Yeah, and it was really funny. She just sent me this message and she said, look, you know, I'm really enjoying it. I've enjoyed the changes you've made, but who the hell is Michael? <laughs> and I'm like, Michael? And I'm going all through the manuscript and she's like, you know, chapter three, paragraph four. And I'm like, oh, that's Mark. Shit, better change. <laughs> she's like, I just had to, uh, who's Michael? Never, yeah. you know, you haven't mentioned a Michael before. I'm like, who's Michael? <laughs> so, yeah, the things that we do, because, you know, you've yes. read it, haven't you? Like by the time you, you finish your manuscript and you're on the sixth or seventh draft of this story, it's like you just want to throw it in the fireplace and burn it. Like I'm sick of looking at it. <laughs> you know, like Exactly. You just... I think that that's that's when we know it's time to to turn it over to somebody else because it's kind of like giving birth. You know, when when you find out you're pregnant, you'll think there is no way I'll ever be able to birth this baby. And by yep. nine months, you're like, I don't care what you have to do. Get this baby. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Look, I, like I can't, I've never, books. I've never been pregnant. Unfortunately, I've never, you know, haven't had kids of my own, but yeah, I can imagine you think you get to the <sighs> point where you're like, I'm over this, just get it out, yes, get it out. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my God. Now, what was I going to ask you? See, we always end up laughing. This is what I'm like. Um, so like like me, you've, you're very busy. Like, you know, I work full-time as a nurse. I've got to, you know, a partner and two stepkids and, you know, doing mm-hmm. this podcast, my own writing. So how do you fit your writing in? Do you have a writing routine or are you just a bit ad hoc like me? I just sort of fit it in where I can. When I was really deep into writing both books, I would make sure that I wrote every single day and kept my head you know, in that book. Mm -hmm. And um, I have two large Labradors and they get me up in the morning and I have to take them out and feed them. And then I run them around our property um, with what we call a mule or four wheeler. And um, after I run them, then I say, okay, now I've got to take an hour or two and get something on paper. So I would make sure that every day I would do that. And I I think you really need that routine otherwise there's so much happening if if we're sitting at home we can think of a dozen things we need to do that are much more important than writing and you know like washing clothes but Mm, cleaning um, yeah shopping grocery shopping you'll start start thinking about that and you'll get up from writing and go do it and that's one thing I love is to go on a writing retreat so that you're away from your environment you know you don't have to run the dogs you don't have to cook dinner for anyone you can Mm -hmm. you can go and take a class in the morning and write all afternoon and far into the night and uh, that's when I think is it's really precious time if you can ever get away and and I I dream about going on a writer's retreat Julia but I haven't Uh, got there I dream about it every day well we have a very remote ranch in Texas if you'd ever like to come out here you won't see anybody for miles around and you can get some writing done Mm, I've been to Texas once and the only reason I went to Texas is because we went to Galveston to do a cruise yes on the Caribbean on the Caribbean so yeah we flew into Houston airport and got a car out to Galveston and did a cruise and came back so yeah and then I went to Vegas in LA so I have been to Texas very briefly Mm -hmm. So I'd have to come back one day. It'd be lovely. Yes. 
Lovely. We'd love to host you. Oh, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> it's nice to dream, isn't it? But I will. I'm mm-hmm. going to try and do that one day. It'd be beautiful. Now, what is the best piece of writing advice you've ever been given, do you think? Wow. I've been given a lot of advice about writing, but I think to really be true to your story, you know, Mm -hmm. we're influenced by so many people and, you know, I got hooked on the editing process because I had six or seven editors who would each tell me something different. They wanted me to take something out of this book. They wanted me to put something in this book and I would have to really think, is that what I want to do? Is, is that really my story? Yep. You know, I think we, we, I think we have to be true to ourselves and we, as the writer, as the author, we know what works for our, our story and yeah. other, other people don't. And I love their advice. And I love um, how wonderful editors are, but I think no matter what, we have to be true to ourselves and to our stories. I think that's great advice because it's it's only a suggestion, isn't it? It's they're not saying you have to take it on board because it's your story, hundred percent. Unless you're in one of the big five publishing houses, then they're pretty strict about. That's true. We're going to take we're going to take these chapters out, and you go, what? Those were my yeah. favorites. Killing yeah. all those darlings, you know. Yeah, that's true. You don't really have it have a say, do you? When that's the case. No. Well, okay, so what? That's advice you've been given. What advice would you give a new author? What's the best piece of advice you could give somebody? I would say to anybody who's listening today that if they think they have a book in them, if they think they have a story in them, that it's never too late. I'm talking to people every day who are just now writing their stories and writing their books and, Mm -hmm. you know, whether you want to publish or whether you just want to write a journal for your family, I think these books are our legacies to this world, to our families, to our children and grandchildren. And I just think it's never too late to sit down and get your thoughts on paper and tell some of your family history, you know, whatever appeals to you, but, but it's really never too late to write. Yeah. And I think like while we're on that topic of, you know, it never being too late, you know, what do you feel are the positives about actually being a bit older? You know, as I said, I'm only three years away from turning 50 myself. And we were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, women feeling invisible and I'm too old to do anything. My life's over. You know, just that negativity around getting older, especially as women, what advice would you give to people who are doubting themselves? I think that as women, especially, you know, we, we think we have to do it all. When I was young, younger than you, I thought that I could do it all. I thought I could have a career. I thought I could raise my children. I, I thought I could, you know, do anything that I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And I think something always suffers. You know, I think, I think we have to, to give ourselves a break and, and to not put ourselves on such not a pedestal, but just that peak of what we have to achieve in our lives. And, you know, I think we can pick and choose what we want to do and, and not think that we have to do it all, but, but what we want to do and what we want to be good doing. Um, I think that's just very important for all of us, especially as women, because we, we have so much on our, on our plates and we're expected even in this time where, 
where partners are supposed to, you know, take 50% of, of the workload from mm-hmm. us, that, that's still not the case. No, well, who's know? carrying the mental load? Yes. The women. Exactly. Exactly. Whether whether you have children or not, there's still a lot of pressure on women today. And I I would just like us to, you know, to give ourselves a break and to say, you know, I don't have to do it all. I'm going to pick and choose what I want to do. But, but I think leaving that legacy is, is so important. You know, when I met my birth mother and I told her, and I was young then, I was in my twenties when I met her. I said, I feel like I have a clock inside my chest and it's ticking very rapidly. And I don't think that I'm going to be able to do all I want to do in this life. And she gasped and she said, that is exactly the description that your great grandmother once told me about her life. And I, I think that's true. You know, some of us want to do so much and achieve so much that we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. And I I think, you know, the older that we get, the more wisdom, the more hindsight, like we've talked about that we have, Mm -hmm. and we can, we can pick and choose and we can say, you know, that's just really not important to me right now. I'm going to put that aside. This is what I want to do right now. This is the most important to me at this time in, in life. And Haley, you know, I finally reached the I've finally reached the age that I really don't care what anybody thinks about me. So oh, I have you know, to agree. Maybe... That's one of the best things about getting to your forties and fifties is excuse is. the French typical Aussie here, but yeah. you just don't, you don't give a shit anymore. No, <laughs> no, you don't care. Really... Do what no, makes you happy. I, yeah. I, I think it, it's great for us to say, you know, this, this is what I want to do. I'm not, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to try to please everyone, you yeah. know? Yep. And I think, you know, when you get to your mid, you know, from your mid forties onwards and that sort of, you know, your later stage of life that you've given so much of yourself for so long to everybody else. And it's time that you did something for yourself. And I think that's the best advice I could give older women too, is just stop, you know, think about what's important to you. You've given enough of yourself and put some time aside for you and do something that you want to do. And it's never too late. I strictly agree with that. Yeah. Now, people who are listening, obviously, you know, wanting to know, you know, where can people listen to your podcast? It lives um, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's on Apple, it's on Google, Mm -hmm. it's on Spotify. It also lives on my website, which is juliadaily.com. And that's D-A-I-L-Y, like daily newspaper. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it, it lives there as well the audio part and it's on YouTube if you want to watch the the podcast. Yep. And again, it's for listeners out there. It's just authors over 50. That's correct. Isn't it? Yes. Authors over 50. Yep. And what about on social media, Julia, where can people find you on social media? I'm on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And it's usually Julia daily author. Um, It's, is where they can find me there. Okay. Now, do you have any final words for our listeners? Anything else you'd like to talk about before we wrap it up? Well, I just appreciate being able to speak to all of you and around the world. We talked about what a small world it's become. And yeah. and, and I think it, it's wonderful for us to be able to share. And, you know, every time I'm with other writers, it just feels like I found my tribe. It's such a generous community. We're always wanting to help someone else who's 
not quite along the path as far as we are. So I'm always ready to, to help anyone and to talk to them and to share my experiences. So all people have to do is reach out. They'll find a writer, an author, an editor, someone who's willing to help them achieve what they'd like to, whatever yeah. success is to them personally, they, it can be achieved. Yeah, hundred percent. Look, because I know Twitter at the moment, you know, with Elon Musk taking over, and it's sort of getting a bit of a reputation as a dumpster fire at the moment. But honestly, the writing community in Twitter is one of the most wonderful places, and it's, it's almost like we're in this safe little bubble. Yes. Yeah, it's friendly, it's supportive. Yeah, and you hear so many bad things about Twitter, but for me, it's my favorite social media platform within the writing community. I think I found so much support there. I've made so many friends and I, I'd be lost without my writing community on Twitter. So so what about you? Sort of what, what social media platform do you find that you engage with the most and you find the most support? I, I love Facebook because I have um, my author um, group there and Instagram and Twitter. They're all equal. I, mm -hmm. I post on all three of those on a weekly basis. Now I have a lot of author friends who are trying out TikTok because a book talk, you know, has become so hot and all I can think of, or, you know, I'm not going to be able to dance with my book and show that, but they say, no, Julia, it's changed a lot since then. There really are talking of having serious conversations about books. So I'll say, well, I'll check it out, but I haven't yet. Have you? Look, I was on TikTok about 18 months ago and I lasted six weeks and I said, <laughs> nope, it was too much hard work. It was like, yeah. hang on a minute. I'm here in my pajamas, no makeup yes. on. I have to do my hair, put some makeup on. No, no, it's, it's just too much hard work. And I think because I'm still working full time and even though I don't have kids of my own, I have two stepkids who, who play a lot of sport and, you know, so, and just running a household. So I found just, you know, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook is enough for me to manage. I just taking on another platform was just too much hard work for me. So I've put TikTok aside and I may come back to it one day, but I'm just finding it's, yeah, I just don't have time. Very hard. Well, yeah. We're, we're told to, you know, pick two or three at the most and really concentrate on those. Just pick the ones that you enjoy. You don't have to be on every one. You're spread too thin. And like we said, we don't have to do all of that. We can pick and choose what we want to do. Yeah, absolutely. Look, Julia, it's, it's been wonderful to finally talk to you. As I said, it's been a long, long time coming and we finally got there. Thank God for that. It's been a real honor to talk to you as well. Yeah, and I'm definitely going to, uh, I've been meaning to check out your podcast. So I'm definitely going to check that out. I think it sounds fantastic. And even though it won't be my debut novel, maybe I can have a little, you know, five-minute little chat with you on your podcast when I turn 50. I would love that. We'll <laughs> celebrate your birthday. That would be lovely. <laughs> Look, Julia, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and for sharing something you know, that was so close to your heart. I think your first book that you wrote is so special um, and I've actually downloaded it um, to read. So I'm going to read it very shortly. I look forward to reading it. Thank you so much. No, thank you. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, when we write, we can't go wrong. And until next time, bye for now.